Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I am doing fine. I'm doing fine. Today, our guest is George Eklund. He works for the Louisville Coalition for the Homeless. He talked to us about the issue of housing, housing security, and, and about policy around housing. It was just a kind of an all-around housing show. Uh, we really appreciated his perspective, his wisdom, and his knowledge about the issue. He's been working in it for a long time um, and, and really, you know, talk to us about how that's going in the city of louisville in the state of kentucky i enjoyed that conversation it was a little bit more global than the last time we talked about housing was a few years ago in moorhead um yeah what did you think jasmine yeah i thought it was really good you said this during the interview but we hadn't really dedicated a whole show to housing um we did that interview with north fork and moorhead and and that was around a very specific issue and an advocacy movement that was going on. But this was a really cool broad brush of housing policy and issues. But then also we talked about a few specific things going on in our state as well. And so I really learned a lot from that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I was really glad he was able to join us. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, just another one of these kind of different interviews not just political figures but people who are dealing with issues here in kentucky today's show is about the legislature we are more than halfway through the 2023 session and a lot of stuff is happening jasmine's going to be talking about even more parents rights bills Uh, i'm going to be talking about a couple of different issues around abortion exceptions around gray machines which if you don't know what that is you should listen find out and then also around kentucky's education board and some reformations reformations some changes that the senate would like to make to how that process works so without any further ado jasmine tell us about these bills that you want to talk about all right so the first one i'm going to talk about is senate bill five um which is people are calling this a a book ban and and i wouldn't really call it a book ban bill it's more like The potential for book banning, I guess. So what it does is it establishes a process for potentially banning books, programs, material that's harmful to minors. Um, So this bill is sponsored by Jason Howell from Murray. And like I said, it establishes a complaint process for materials that are harmful to minors, which is defined in the bill. Um, which can be a lot of different things. The first one is pretty specific. It's like any exposure um, or visual depictions or explicit written descriptions of any sex act or um, private parts, anything like that is included in the first part of the definition. The second part of the definition, um, it is taken as a whole appeal to the prurient interest in sex or third is patently offensive to prevailing standards regarding what is suitable material for minors. So I think, I think that part, that last one is, is maybe the most broad or subjective. I don't know what, yeah exactly uh, that means well well that'll have to be litigated most likely or never challenged potentially so i don't yeah i don't know what it what it means and and we have we have other similar language in other 
laws. Um, but but that one just seems the most subjective to me when it comes to books or artistic materials, you know. Um, so that's the definition of what harmful to minors is. So the complaint would be submitted to the principal of the school, and then the principal would have to investigate within seven days and shall determine whether access to the material should be restricted. The principal must then meet with the parent or guardian who made the complaint within 10 days of receiving the complaint, which when I read this, I thought this was a very quick process um, because I guess what I wonder about is if a parent submits multiple complaints about a lot of books at once and the principal has to read all of these materials in a week, determine if they're appropriate. And then within they get three more days to meet with the parent. That's a, that's a really quick process to me. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, so after that, there is then an appeals process. And even if the parent or guardian loses they can still request that their child does not have access to the material. Um, so even if the principal determines and then it, it goes up the chain and goes through an appeal and it's determined that the material can remain in the school, who the complainant can still say, my child can't see it. Um, and this can be not just books, they added language about programs or events. And so I think that makes this even broader um, than it originally was. So I think this bill comes from, um, there was a, a situation where a parent ended up taking a JCPS teacher to court over a book. Yeah, I remember that. It, it took several months, and and so this is meant to establish a quick and simple complaint process, but it all has to happen pretty quickly, um, it, and it could end up being a lot of work for administration um, if there are a lot of challenges to material in the schools. Yeah. Uh, Jasmine, I listened back to the show that we did last week after we were finished with it, and I sounded incredibly cranky. Uh, and I have sounded really cranky like this whole session because there has been so much of this moral panic uh, that has been going on. And that kind of thing just really frustrates me in terms of a public policy response. And I'm going to try to be less cranky through the rest of the session. But this is another bill that makes yeah. me cranky. Like, the, like the, what, I don't understand really like why we need to ban books. <clears throat> I think school is for learning. You learn from books like kids especially older kids you know high school age or whatever are, are mature enough to handle these kinds of things a lot of times they're not getting the kind of education they need at home around sex i mean that's just the truth and if kids don't have access to good education around sex they there's a lot of problems that happens later in life and by just locking that away you're causing more problems than you're solving uh, and, and, you know, I, I, there, during the debate on this, there was like a kind of a, a gotcha moment that the RPK tried to use with this question that 
Lindsay Titchener asked about this book that apparently like describes like masturbation or something. And the person who was like trying to defend it was like, you know, it's okay for kids to read about this. And they were like, can you believe it? And I was like, yes, because that's, I think that that's okay. And I don't know. I guess that this is, this is a winning argument that Republicans have, but I will say about it. It could have been a lot worse. If you look at places like Florida and and some of the things that have been coming out uh, around the response and and book bannings in other parts of the country, it is really scary. Uh, Yeah. And and this is a little bit more reserved. There's a process. It's still up to the principal, even if, uh, you know, the the, uh, legislature's inserting themselves maybe a little bit too much into it. So, yeah, this is annoying. It's not smart. I don't think it's a good bill. But it could be worse, and uh, but at the same time, I still wish we didn't have it. Yeah, definitely. And and it's not as if schools are just letting any material come in. Yeah, it's not like these. You know, like librarians are know what books are in their system, and decisions are being made about curriculum and program programming by teachers and principals and you know it's it's not as if these things are just like seeping in to schools without any kind of like check or review on yeah. materials it it, it i mean and whether they're appropriate it, on one level this is like very anti-teacher because it's basically saying like your teacher mm-hmm. or your principal you shouldn't trust them we, right you shouldn't trust with the the material that they're putting in front of your kids like you know i, I think teachers always almost always have kids best interest at heart of course that's not 100 percent true but i think by and large enough that i'm i'm willing to say that we don't need this bill so which is you know it which is interesting because we have these other bills where legislators have said this is about the teacher's rights this is about the teacher's free speech rights and we have this conduct bill that's about supposed to be about empowering teachers and and this is saying we don't we don't trust the teachers to make decisions about uh what materials they teach or make available in their schools yeah absolutely so this bill passed the senate 29 to 4 with one democrat robin webb voting in favor of the bill robin webb is the lone democrat from eastern kentucky Mm -hmm. in the senate um that's not too surprising to me that she voted in favor of it. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised by that at all. So that's the first one. The next one is House Bill 470, which bans gender-affirming care for minors. And this bill is a 37-page bill sponsored by Jennifer Decker from Shelby County. And it bans essentially any form of gender-affirming care minors and the bill defines gender transition services as any service provided or performed by a health care provider or mental health care provider for the purposes of assisting a person with a gender transition um so specifically it bans prescribing puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones or anything like that bans any gender affirming surgery but i think what is even even more broad than specific transition procedures is it also includes inpatient or outpatient social transition services. So to me, this 
would also seemingly include therapists who see transgender patients or even just a child who is questioning gender or changing their name or pronouns it it's extremely broad yeah mm-hmm. it would deem any violation of any of the above unethical and unprofessional conduct and were would revoke the license of a provider who provided those services i believe it also creates there's a criminal element to that as well i'm not sure about that so okay i can't remember i think it maybe like makes it a class c felony but i can't remember so not to check me on that okay um it also provides a legal defense for providers who do not want to engage in gender transition services and establishes avenues for providers who do provide those services to be sued for damages. It also requires schools to notify parents about a change in gender expression, including a change in name, pronouns, or inconsistency with their perceived sex. So... There's there's so much in this bill, and I, I just can't believe how harmful it is. It it feels like we made that we've made a little bit of progress in the way of making banning conversion therapy a bipartisan issue, and there was some conservative support to ban conversion therapy. And what this bill would do for a mental health provider for minors is ban any kind of therapy, but that it Mm. seems. Yeah. Well, that kind of goes to, I think one of the braver things that the LGBT community in, in Louisville, Kentucky have done, which is basically gotten assurance that, you know, we could pass some stuff for the LGB part of that coalition. And those people standing steadfast with their trans brothers and sisters and saying, no, it's either all of us or none of us, because I mean, it is, it does seem based on that, that there is like some appetite to, to do some stuff around, um, you know, people who are lesbian, gay or bisexual. But when it comes to trans issues, we are as bad as we ever have been and getting worse. Um, and that is, that is really shameful. This is another thing that has already happened in a lot of other states. I don't know about the social transition part, but definitely like Arkansas and Texas have a lot of these things in place already. They made big news when when they passed them. Um, and, and it is it's devastating. I mean, it is just devastating. And it's it's just wild. Like, I, I mean, it, it hurts. It hurts me so much because just being around trans people enough to see how much of a difference it makes for for those people to receive services to 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 be the people that they fully are uh and to basically be like no you can't have that uh is just cruel it is just cruel and and i i mean i just said i wasn't gonna be cranky but i'm just i'm sorry it's it just it just hurts it just hurts me to 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 live in a state where this is what we're doing um yeah, it is. It's extreme. It's terrifying. It is just so sad. But uh, I guess, uh, you know, I guess we're we're moving on this bill, right? Yeah, so House Majority Floor Leader Stephen Rudy 
said last week that they plan to pass this bill soon and there's a lot of support for it, that the caucus has been working on this package for a long time now, and it had its first reading last Tuesday. However, today, David Osborne said that there would be a number of changes being made to the bill. Yeah. Um, so it hasn't passed out of committee yet. It, it looks like there there may be some changes made, but this bill is just really terrifying to me. Um, you know, we we talked about we've talked about suicide rates of and attempted suicide rates of trans youth and trans people. Um, the last few weeks on the show, when we talked about Senate Bill One Fifty, and and. This is even scarier to me, especially, you know, preventing any kind of mental health services that involve yeah. assisting someone with social transition, because that would mean, you know, not being able to use their pronouns or um, express themselves through changing their clothing. And, and, and that's just that's just crazy to me. We all we all do things to affirm our gender in some way, you know, as a woman, I've gotten eyelash extensions and highlights in my hair. You know, those are all, all things that I've done to affirm my gender and, and things like this shouldn't be any different. And my spouse is a therapist for trans teenagers and under this bill, cannot do his job anymore yeah and so you know while that's very scary for us it's even more scary for the children and teenagers who um who are who are facing things like this yeah it is it's just it's cruel it's cruel is what it is um, we'll see what David Osborne has cooking for this bill. Hopefully they're able to moderate it slightly, make it so that it's a little bit less bad. You know, I, I also feel like another piece that's kind of hanging over this bill and, and a lot of the bills that are moving is, is just the house's inability to control its caucus. Um, it got larger, obviously, you know, they beat a bunch of Democrats because they redistricted them out of their seats. But then also a lot of their incumbents lost their primaries and have been replaced by people who are very extreme. There were also a lot of incumbents who retired, uh, you know. So Jennifer Decker's pretty new to the legislature. She's she's in her second term. And, you know, I, I forget the name of the man that she replaced there in Shelby County, but he'd been there for a really long time. Um, and, and yeah, like it is, you know, this, that part of the caucus that's very extreme on these issues is just growing in power. And even if the Republican leaders don't necessarily want to, you know, pass all this legislation, they're losing a lot of their control over that part of the, the, the caucus. And, and, you know, we are all losing because, because of that. So yeah, uh, scary stuff really horrible just horrible stuff just i mean it, it's it's hard not to be cranky it's just very hard not to be cranky yeah it, it is <sighs> okay um moving on um a couple of other bills that i wanted to talk about the first is abortion exceptions so jasmine you stop me if you heard this before but uh kentuckians voted to not ban abortion in the constitution in uh the last election and um the legislature 
it was wondered if they would make uh, amendments to the ban on abortions in uh, the wake of that happening. So HB 569 is a bill that's been filed. And that bill would ever so slightly expand abortion access in Kentucky. The bans that are currently in effect only make exceptions for women whose lives are in danger. So this bill would expand access to abortion to women who are pregnant due to rape or incest and also women whose children would not be compatible with life outside the womb. The chief sponsor of the bill is Jason Nemus. He's in leadership. Jim Gooch, who is formerly a Democrat. So I think that there's that's maybe one of the reasons he is the sponsor of this bill. Um, obviously, you know, was a Democrat when abortion was a major Democratic issue, as it is now. And also uh, Killian Timoney, who I, I don't know. I think it's fair to say he's probably the most moderate Republican in the whole legislature, at least in the House. I think probably in the whole legislature, though. Um, so those are the three men that are sponsoring this bill in the House. So HB 569, though, uh, what it actually does is it sets up an overly complex way to determine if a fetal abnormality exists. So the rape or incest thing is, I think it's just like a physician's just like, yeah, okay, that's what seems to have happened here. Uh, Fetal abnormalities, which have to be diagnosed by doctors, two physicians must document that a fetal abnormality exists. Jasmine, I have pretty intimate knowledge about how this process works, uh, having gone through it in a very terrible situation. Uh, that's pretty standard practice. So, you know, you you will go to your appointment, and if something is wrong, they will refer you to a, uh, a high-risk obstetrician, is what that is called, and they would confirm the diagnosis. So that's two doctors, and that's, I think, who they were presupposing would be the people who would sign off on this. However... Even under Roe, uh, which is, you know, when, when this happened to us, um, there was a lot of paperwork, a lot of forms, a lot of things that we had to, like, go in and sign and make sure all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed and all of that. And this this process would require even more of this. With abortion as restricted as it possibly can be right now, uh, you know, it is, it, it's, it's terrible. And I can say that that moment between when you realize what's happening to you and the moment when it's over, that time period is incredibly painful, incredibly fraught. There's just, it's awful. It's an awful, awful time. And, you know, this system would only serve to elongate it. There's no reason to have two doctors sign off on it. One doctor is going to make that diagnosis. Like, what do you think? The doctor is going to lie? I, I don't know what they're thinking is going to happen here. You know, they, they think there will be some sort of like rogue physician who's going in and saying everybody has fetal abnormalities because they're just that, you know, they're they're that careless with their license and are super pro-abortion or whatever. I, I don't I don't know. What, what they think is, is going to happen or that this solution is going to solve that problem. Um, you know, so so that's that's what's going on here. There is a different bill, SB91 in the Senate. That was a bill filed by Denise Harper Angel, and it essentially mimics HB569, but it only requires one physician to sign off on a fetal abnormality. There's no reason not to do that, but, you know, that is what it is. I am glad that there is this bill that exists that would expand the process, even if it's not perfect. 
But as of when I wrote this down, which was last night, so unless it changed today in the legislature, I'm not sure, neither HB 569 nor SB 91 has started moving at all. Um, HB 569 is, of course, the only bill that has a chance to move. But, uh, you know, while the bill has gotten some press, it got written up in a couple of newspapers, it's yet to be seen if the legislature actually has any appetite for moving the bill, even though it's sponsored by one of the members of leadership. So, Jasmine, what do you think about uh, our abortion access expansion bill that's been filed? I mean, I agree with everything you said that this... It's good that we have some minimal expansion, even though it's it's not enough, and we're likely never going to get that the way the legislature is made up now. Um, I I'm not sure if I have any optimism that that this could even move, though. It I don't know. I think that there are Republicans who believe in it. I think Jason Nemus is, is one of them. I, I He wanted an amendment for exceptions like this when the previous bill passed. But I, I just don't know with such a staunchly anti-abortion caucus, I don't know if they're going to be able to do it. Or if there's an appetite to do it. But they said they were going to after the constitutional amendment, they, they said they were going to have a bill with exceptions. I think they said that at the Supreme Court. Yeah. In a case mm-hmm. um, during oral argument or something. And so, like, they did file it. The yeah. bill, we, we have the bill. I'm just not sure if it has a chance to get passed. The Supreme Court did ask a lot of questions about this topic rape and incest and then fetal abnormalities in um, oral arguments for the case um, for the, I guess whatever piece of the case that they were arguing about. So they may be holding off on this one to see if this actually factors into the decision that the Supreme court makes, if that's going to happen while they're in session. And if the, they're like, well, because you didn't have these exceptions, we're throwing out your bans. Maybe they'll file a exception to put it back in place. Who knows? All right. Uh, no, I mean, I don't think we'll have anything from the Supreme Court while they're in session. Yeah, you're right. Right that, now, the the decision on the injunction already came out, and the Attorney General won. You know, that came out in their favor. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Listen last week. Listen to last week's show if you want more information about that. Um, okay, gray machines. Uh, gray machines are video games with cash payouts. Uh, that's the definition of what they are. They typically exist in convenience stores or gas stations. You may have seen them. They just look like little video, like you can do a little puzzle or whatever. And if you get it right in, you know, 45 seconds or whatever, you get like a buck 50 after you put in a quarter or something. I don't know. I don't exactly know the amount of money we're talking here, (laughs) Uh, but uh, they exist and they're big business for some folks. Uh, Supporters of these machines call them legal skill games and their opponents usually just call them illegal gambling. They are pretty big business, uh, the, but the horse industry thinks they are crowding out historical horse racing. So we've talked about historical horse racing before. That's basically just like legal slot machines that send their profits to the horse industry and have a little bit cut off the top uh, in, in taxes. So 
There are two bills sponsored by Killian Timoney, second time I've mentioned him, that would ban gray machines. And of the two, HB 594 has the most support from the horse racing industry. It actually got a reading in the house last week, and then over the weekend, a mysterious ad dropped on YouTube saying that Timoney was too moderate on trans issues, especially around women's sports. Um, so that, you know, those two things kind of happen in conjunction. And I saw a tweet from Joe Sanka saying that, you know, maybe that ad might be retribution for these bills because the groups that are supporting an opposing gray machine have spent the most money so far this session on lobbying big, big business on both sides, big teams trying to either, uh, you know, pass or sink these bills. Um, and maybe they're coming after Killian Timoney for leading the charge to try to ban gray machines. On the other side of this issue, the more pro-gray machine side, Stephen Doan and Savannah Maddox have filed a bill which would tax gray machines. So Doan is actually the man who defeated Adam Koenig in the 2022 Republican primary up there in northern Kentucky. Adam Koenig was a long-term Republican member of the legislature um, who was a committee chair, pretty moderate guy, pretty supportive of gambling. Savannah Maddox is, of course, the leader of the Liberty Caucus on the right flank of the GOP you know, caucus, and they aren't exactly the favorites uh, of the Republican leadership there in the House. So I think that the pro-gray machine side is mostly trying to stomp out Timoney, Timoney's gray machine bans, but and not necessarily trying to get the uh, other bill passed. But anyways, we'll see what's happening uh, soon enough. This bill is moving. Uh, the, the amount of money is about to probably be increased, and those people are about to try to earn the amount of money that's been paid to them. So that's gray machines. It's supposed to be a big topic this year. Do you feel like we did a good job explaining it there, Jazz? Yeah, I still don't really know what they are or, or look like, um, but I understand the issue. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe we should like take a field trip to a gas station, see if that has one, <laughs> see if we can play it. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, the Kentucky Education Board Reformation. So the Kentucky Board of Education has been through a lot in the past five years. One of our earliest shows was actually talking about uh, Matt Bevin messing with this board. Um, Matt, Be- Matt Bevin, you know, actually made this board significantly more conservative with the nominations that he had, and they did a bunch of stuff, hired a, a new uh, director that was very unpopular among um, public school advocates, and uh, a lot of stuff happened there with the Kentucky Board of Education. And after being elected, Governor Bashir dismantled and recreated the entire board as one of his initial acts. That move was litigated very heavily, but the people who were suing him lost their standing because their terms would have expired and they no longer were able to maintain that case. So now Senator Mike Wilson has filed a bill which passed the Senate, has already passed the Senate, which would change the way that nominations to the Board of Education would work. His bill creates a nominating committee which would submit recommendations for spots on the board which the governor must choose from. I think there's like a list of three or something. Pick one of these three. The committee itself would be selected by the governor, but they would, you know, serve terms. And so you wouldn't be able to nominate everybody on the nominating committee. Um, But one big change is that the makeup of the board would have to be proportionate based on political representation. So based on the the, uh, 
registration statistics about party in the state. Um, it would have to be proportionate based on gender, race, geography, one member from each of the state's Supreme Court districts. So that that's what makes this a little different than how it goes. So in debate over the bill, Senator Berg, Senator Karen Berg of Louisville, she said that it was further politicizing a process, which, in, in you know, that's what she said. But of course, the, the process has already been quite political. Um, of course, Senator Wilson disagreed and said that his bill takes politics out of the process. So you know, choose your own adventure there. I don't really know how I feel about this bill, to be totally honest with you. Uh, If I was in the legislature, I probably wouldn't support it because that's kind of what the Democrats have decided to do. But honestly, if I'm looking into my heart, I'm pretty divided. Um, You know, this bill's motivations are revenge for what Andy Bashir did in the first days of his governorship. I'm a bit agnostic, though, because, you know, if it does come to pass that Republicans end up dominating the governorship for the next 20 years or whatever, it would be good to have Louisville, one of the state Supreme Court districts, to have maybe um, a black person, uh, maybe some more women on this nominating committee uh, to to get some folks uh into these uh, Board of Education seats uh, spots that may be a little bit more moderate than who a very conservative Republican governor might put in place. I don't know. I don't know. Um, anyways, it was in retribution, uh, and, and that's what they're trying to do. So, Jasmine, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And I think I kind of feel the same way. It seems like having a, a proportionate makeup on the, the board of different demographics that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know, if they do dominate the governorship, they can just repeal the bill and let the Republican governor do whatever they want. That's so, true. You know, it is what it is. All right. That's all we really wanted to talk about, except for we wanted to note that HB3, which is the juvenile justice bill that we have talked about quite a bit, it passed. It passed with a committee substitute. There was a lot more funding added to the bill. Jasmine, do you know the details of that at all? We'll, we'll go through it in a later show if we don't. So the bill in its original form, what we talked about on the show was it did not include like mental health care for children in the facilities and it didn't include um, the funding that the governor and the Department of Juvenile Justice requested for various things like secure physical security upgrades and hiring more staff and things like that. And so I believe that the committee sub includes a mental health provision and that funding. Yeah. So that that was a committee sub that was filed on it. It was passed out of committee and then passed the House later today. Um, I will say they did the same thing as they did with SB 150, where they sent it back to committee. So all of the floor amendments that were on the old bill weren't able to be heard. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a little bad i'm not a big fan of that uh it seems like that's the second time that they've done that this time um you know the the amendments weren't going to pass but they didn't even have to hear them so i don't know they might as well just pass a rule that says democrats are not allowed to put floor amendments forward i guess but um yeah you know i guess that does make the bill better we'll have to take a look at it to see where it landed um i do know that there were some folks that were you know juvenile justice advocates that still weren't really happy with the bill uh, but yeah, we'll have to dig into it a little bit and, more. Yeah, there there was testimony about how detention is the highest indicator of recidivism. Yep. Um, and and that's what this bill does is in increased detention. <laughs> yep. 
um, for youth. And, and then there's also major concerns around removing confidentiality in cases that we've talked about on the show before. Yes. But this... That bill is moving, and I think it will pass. Yeah, I think it will. HB3 very rarely doesn't pass. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess it's possible. All right, that's it for this part of the show. Let's get to our interview about housing with George Eklund. George Eklund is the Director of Education and Advocacy at the Louisville Coalition for the Homeless. Mr. Eklund's roots are in Moorhead, and he's worked in community organizing for several years, including at the Network Center for Community Change in Louisville, and at the ACLU. Um, So, George Eklund, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. Yeah, thank you all for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. We've been wanting to talk about this issue for a long time, and and you came highly recommended, and it's been really nice to get to know you through the process of scheduling and everything like that. So we would love to start by just talking to you a little bit about, you know, the organization that you work for. The Coalition of the Homeless does a lot of stuff in Louisville, and, you know, it's it's a long-running organization that a lot of people in town know on some level. So just talk to us a little bit about what what you do on a day-to-day basis and, you know, how you found yourself uh, working for uh, the Coalition for the Homeless. Yeah, so the coalition is a 35-year-old organization, and we started in the 80s after a task force that the mayor put together just to address the issue that people were dying on the streets from homelessness and exposure. Um, So our role in the community has been established, but we work to end and address homelessness and housing insecurity through coordination, education, and advocacy. So the coordination piece is like our largest component. It is making sure that the shelters are... Um, communicating with each other, making sure that we're getting adequate resources. And I, I usually like to compare us to like a flotilla, like making sure that everybody's in the same flotilla, that we're moving in the, generally the same direction, that we're getting the same resources, that we're sharing information, that we're coordinating that response. Um, just because the the need is so great and we don't have time to duplicate services and we don't have time to fight over territory. We need to really just focus on getting people into housing. Um I got into this work, you know, mostly from from the standpoint that I I believe like housing is a right, like it is an essential foundation stone that all of our lives are built upon. So like we come home after a bad day and we have a pint of ice cream, we celebrate our holidays, our birthdays in a place that we call home. And it's it is a essential piece to like our day to day life and like all of our successes. Um, and so for too many Kentuckians, for too many Louisvillians, like that is out of reach. And those that have it, many are paying way too much in their monthly rent. They're paying, spending too much of their monthly wages towards rent. And that's that's holding them back. It's money that they can't put to uh, college. It's money that they can't put towards savings that, that they are just sinking into, um, you know, to high rents. Um, my day-to-day work is, is talking about that and going out and communicating those needs and um, talking about the policy uh, implications, but also talking about like kind of the vision that we have as an organization. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting organization. They do a lot of really amazing things. Uh, and, you know, the, the need is very, very large here in the city of Louisville. And it's always been good to see that somebody's tackling this really tough issue. You know, we've done this show for seven, almost seven years now, and, and we've never dedicated a show to housing before. Uh, we've talked a lot about a lot of different issues, uh, uh, you know, dedicated shows to a lot of different issues through the years. 
and housing's really always been a major issue, but I don't know, it kind of feels to me like it's growing in salience or importance across Kentucky. You know, you work in this issue every day and have for years. Is that something that you feel too, uh, or, or is it just kind of a steady drumbeat for you? No, I mean, I think that there's more attention on it now than there ever has been. Um, I think that's a couple reasons. One, COVID. Like, we really... The pandemic has changed how we view home and how, like, it's, you know, if you want to be healthy at home, you got to have a home. Um, so that's one piece. I think um, downtown development has upset the status quo of people that are forced to sleep outside. Um, you know, we had camps that nobody knew about for many years on the side of the soccer stadium, on the side of the botanical gardens, and under 264. And it's just because of, like, this infusion of resources and energy and development that like that disrupted the status quo and so that was really the starting point of us seeing street homelessness grow outside of um where it traditionally is out 264 out 65 and like further out into the east and south ends so the energy is there i think more people are, are interested in this issue more people are looking for reasonable actions and policy changes and um you know I think they're looking for our local leaders to really try and like put forth reasonable actionable solutions to, to this issue. Yeah. That's so interesting when you talk about the status quo being upset and, you know, the intersection of development and, uh, and housing is, is obviously such an important and difficult and thorny piece of this puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is kind of like the status quo is upset, but it was it really okay that all those people were sleeping there. But at the same time, was it okay to just move them out? And like, yes, that's one of the things that makes this really, really tough for yeah. sure. It's, it's brought awareness to the issue. Um, yeah. I don't think anybody loves seeing somebody sleep outside. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a reality that we have to deal with. Right. Now. Like, like citywide, like we only have like 750 shelter beds. And if you talk about family shelter, we only have 50 spots. And so every night, like we have probably 20, 30, 40 families that are sitting on the waiting list. And we have shelters that are full, shelters that aren't meeting the needs of people. And like we saw during the during the ice storm over Christmas and through our point in time count, like we probably have between 300, 400 people that are sleeping out every night because there's no space in shelters. Um, yeah, that's kind of like where we're at right now. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, when you talk about, like, nobody likes to see anyone sleep outside, uh, you know, I think that there's a couple different ways to look at that. And, I mean, there are some people who feel very empathetic or, or sad um, to see that happen. And then there's, a, of course, a lot of people who just think it's gross and don't want to see those people at all ever. Uh, yeah. And there's different ways to, to definitely different ways that people look at that. Um, and, and no matter who you are, I think as people who have homes and don't have to think every day about where we're going to sleep – we do kind of have preconceived notions about the, the folks who do struggle to maintain consistent housing for whatever reason. I mean, and, and as somebody who lives in this world, can you tell us a little bit about the people who, who you know, you guys are helping uh, and, and what those preconceived notions are, are how they're wrong or right or, or, or whatever? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's easy to pass off homelessness as a su- substance use disorder issue, as a severe mental illness issue. But it's so much more complicated than that. Like the people that we see have so much baggage and trauma and experiences. And, and you know, at the end of the day, like everybody that is homeless has free will and they're creative, resourceful and whole. And 
because of economics, because of poverty, which is the common denominator against uh, that we see in all these people, like they're in survival mode and they're going to figure it out and try to come up with the best solution to survive till tomorrow. Um, and like, we need to look at them more like as a, rather than like as a, like a monolith group, I think we need to think about it as different subsets of like the population that we're dealing with. And the responses that we need to develop as a city and as a community need to be different to meet the needs of those people. Like the other piece of this that I want like everybody to take away is that the people that we see sleeping on the, on the streets are the tip of the iceberg. Like those are the people that have been shut out by the system the most, the people that are the most um, disadvantaged that, that fall into the cracks the most, the larger population are those 4,000 JSPS students that are homeless each year or the people that are couch surfing that we never know about. Um, so like homelessness is like, it is an iceberg. I need to come up with a better analogy because uh, that one's always overused, but like there's a silent hidden population of people that are homeless every day. And I give presentations to out in community and through those conversations, I, I, people are like, Oh, I was homeless. Like I didn't realize it, but us like sleeping at my grandma's house, that was really us getting displaced. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, those are the takeaways I would like, you know, share with the listener, share with the community of like how complicated this issue really is. Yeah. I, I certainly appreciate um, how you describe these people as creative, resourceful and whole people. And, and it's just something that anyone can experience and can deal with so easily if, if one thing goes wrong. Um, but we wanted to talk a little bit about some specific policy things, but first kind of a more general question. So housing policy is a mishmash of local, state, and federal laws and regulations that are all pretty complicated. And so um, how does the complex nature of housing policy account for the difficulty that we have in confronting housing issues yeah i mean it's it's a lot <laughs> it's in all all layers of that of that cake like they have competing interests and they have differing mm -hmm. um, motivations and goals in mind so like federal government is just like the biggest funder of homeless services locally is the federal government through hud and that's through the COC grant and through HUD um, and our like entitlement funding. Um, the state has very little to do with housing policy, except for when it comes to landlord tenant law, like they don't really touch right. it. And then locally, like they, they also need action. Locally, we need action from the state and the national level. What we don't need locally is like them complicating the issues of people that are homeless um, and really creating a, an environment where we're supporting people to move them into housing and we're moving them into housing that we're building. Um, does that answer your question, Jasmine? I'm sorry. No, yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. The The first specific thing we wanted to ask you about is housing supply. And that's definitely a major issue across yeah. the state. However, ex expanding our housing stock is difficult because of issues around development, preservation, gentrification, and, and other things. Um, so from your perspective, you know, are there better ways that we could be dealing with increasing the supply of housing in the state? 
we we could be building housing <laughs> and we could be building housing that matches the needs that we have um and i mean the other part of this and this is like a a a, a bunny hole that we don't have to go down we can but like we've made <laughs> bad decisions for the last 80 years about housing and housing policy um and we chose winners and losers we chose who access, who had access to capital we had we chose who uh, what kind of housing stock we were going to prioritize. And largely that has been like home ownership is the key. Like we're going to prioritize mm-hmm. ownership. And in the seventies and eighties, we saw like a, us taking a step back from hun- from funding affordable housing and apartments. Like if you look at like housing starts based on like how many it is, like the large amount of housing starts that we have had, have over the last 30, 70 or since 1970, have been single family. And I'll share this graph with you all to see so that you can see like, when are we building housing? What kind of housing are are coming online? So, but largely we have not been building apartments for the last 50 or 40 years. Um, We need to increase density. We need to look at how we can get more affordable housing options on the market rather than focusing on single family, large homes that are really geared towards, you know, established professionals that, maybe on their second or third home versus the first time home buyer options, which we don't really have or build here in in Louisville. Um, I mean, we need to really look at how we're funding housing development. Um, You know, we have the affordable housing trust on locally and we have a statewide version, but it's not meeting the needs and it's not, you know, trying to catch up to the gap we have of, you know, statewide it's 81,000 units of affordable rental for somebody making minimum wage. Locally in Louisville, it's about 31,000 units of rental for somebody that's making minimum wage. Gotcha. So kind of, you know, something that we wanted to talk to you about as far as Louisville, but other cities too, if you're plugged into how other cities have handled housing issues, but the leaders of our cities, state and federal governments all acknowledge that there are problems around housing and, you know, have all offered at least some kind of plan for housing. And and that's been just a few weeks ago. We talked about um, Craig Greenberg's state of the city address and also Linda Gorton's in Lexington and and housing were both huge, huge pieces of those. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about how you feel our current leaders are confronting housing as an issue I mean, I'm I'm excited about Greenberg's energy about it. Um, you know, I want him to succeed. Like, if he actually creates fifteen thousand units of rental of affordable rental in his first term, like I will be over the moon. Um, what we need from our local officials is them to take affirmative steps because this is a problem that the market isn't going to solve itself. It's a problem that's not going to go away by itself. Like we need to unapologetically focus on housing as that essential base thing. And it's not just to let meet the needs, but it's also to grow our city economically. It's to, you know, support the people that are here now. Um, and we have a track record, like historically as a country of like dealing with this issue. You know, we think about the Great Depression and we took steps to house people. We think about like post World War post World War II housing needs, where we uh, where we just built a ton of housing 
like in a quick in quick fashion. So we have a track record of doing this. Um, you know, I'm excited that the mayor has focused on this issue, like throughout the campaign and, you know, in his first couple of weeks in office. Um, I just don't want, I hope that they don't get frustrated that it's hard. Yeah. I, I, they like stay the path um, and really think about it holistically of just like, it's not just funding housing, but we got to look at land development code reform. We got to look at renter protections. We got to look at supports for, um, you know, the people that are, that are on the street right now. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, we all have a vision of what we need. Like housing advocates have this vision. Um, it's a puzzle. So we can't have this vision with just like three pieces. We need the, all the pieces um, that we got to go find some, some of them. Yeah. I, I think that that's really prescient to talk about how, you know, we hope that the people who are tasked with solving this problem don't get tired of trying to solve it. And, and it does kind of feel like based on the campaign that the mayor ran that like he pays attention to the issues that people yeah. talk to him about. And as long as the energy kind of remains behind this, I kind of feel like, you know, he's going to do something. So, um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and council has done stuff over the last three years. Like I am, I'm amazed at how far we've come during COVID. Like we passed right to council here locally. We passed sorts of income discrimination protections here locally. They dedicated $72 million of ARP funding to housing. Like these are huge, like monumental steps. I think for us as advocates, we just need to convey to council and to the mayor, like that's not enough. Like that is a good starting point, but let's keep momentum going. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's so many priorities where it's like, we would really like to take big swings and you know, talk about like pre-K or education reform, like all kinds of stuff like that, where it's like, this is going to be expensive, but it is really valuable and worth it. And housing is, is huge, maybe top of mind, I think probably with, with respect to that. All right. So you, you know, we talked a little bit in your introduction, but you actually have roots in a more rural part of Kentucky. And, you know, I, I always like to separate like small cities from like actual rural places versus a place like Louisville or Lexington. But, you know, um, obviously like housing issues, in uh in in those places look different it's an issue everywhere but kind of the contours of the issue can be very different um in in places like moorhead uh versus a place like louisville or lexington and and i would really love for you to tell us a little bit about you know how you understand the differences between rural housing and and issues in urban housing uh given that you know the people that listen to our show come from all over the state yeah i mean it's there's so many similarities between the urban like dynamics and the rural dynamics. And I was talking to somebody about this, like there's historical divestment, there's historical, like a history of people coming in and promising the world and then bouncing and then not really solving anybody's issues. Um, and it, and like growing up in East Kentucky, like it's probably part of the reason that I was drawn to housing like, I remember a guy in my church was, like, a big, like, affordable housing developer. And he had, like, a Habitat model that he was running in Moorhead. Um, and I had, like, classmates that I know were doubling up with family members that were, like, in trailer parks. And, like, the conditions were substandard. Like, nobody should live like that. Like, we're talking, like, you know trailers that are being held together by duct tape and you know again and this goes back to people being creative resourceful and whole they were figuring it out but were they thriving were they actually like helping move their like the next generation forward and things 
So I think when when we look at housing, like holistically across the state, we need we need to look at availability, so our supply. We need to look at our affordability, so how much are we paying, and we need to look at our quality. So like, what are we paying? Um, you know, and it's it's the same dynamics except for race. I mean, that's a whole other thing that we can talk about because that's that's the other elephant that we have to that we have to deal with in Kentucky. But like. You know, we see bad conditions in East Kentucky. We see bad conditions in West Kentucky. We we see um, bad conditions in West Louisville. Like it's a issue of poverty and having access to that foundation stone that really like will move that family forward because um, they're they're sinking money down down a drain that they're never going to like get back. Yeah. Um, and if we re- I mean, if we rethought like home ownership and um like that affordability piece. So like in Louisville, in West Louisville, you know, the house is probably worth 50 grand. That family is spending $800 a month on rent. If they were able to just own that piece of property, what would their 30 year mortgage be? I mean, they would be spending $300 a month on a mortgage for $50,000. And they could take all that money that they're spending on rent to build up that asset to support their family members and I think it's the same dynamic in, in Eastern Kentucky is like just getting people um, the tools to be able to like support themselves. Yeah. And, and, you know, then you start getting into banking and you start getting into access to capital, like all kinds of stuff, yes. it, it, ways to intersect with that issue for sure, yeah. uh, which it starts to get, it's already pretty complicated and then it just gets even more complicated. And yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I said earlier that we'd never done a show based solely around housing, but I guess we did once where we talked about housing in Moorhead uh, with people being displaced yeah. from uh, trailer yeah. park there. I, I had yeah. classmates that, that lived in that trailer park. Yeah. 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 Crazy stuff for sure. I don't um, think we, should, yeah, I don't think we should do that kind of stuff. I think like people that are getting displaced need, um, need the most amount of supports to transition to things. Yeah. So, you know, the same that same thing is happening that happened in Moorhead at that trailer park happening on Burnett and um, Preston Street. Like there's a company that has bought that purchased a whole bunch of like very affordable rental shotgun houses on a court and they're going to demo them so that they can expand their operation. Like it, it's happening all over and it's just tawdry and disrespectful to people that make their lives there to expect them to move within a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, those people deserve more. They deserve rights. Um, yeah. And there's there's ways that we can structure our entire system that do better by those people for sure. You talked about this a little before, but you know the the pandemic and then of course the dual disasters that happened in eastern and western Kentucky and the tornado that happened in western Kentucky and the floods that happened in eastern Kentucky. Uh, I, you know, we, they brought housing forward as an issue, and that's something we've talked about already. But they also created significant sources of temporary funding. Um, for for you know people who want to deal with the issue of of housing and we are those are firmly in our rearview mirror now uh, in terms of the policy response to those issues and some of those funding sources are starting to dry up a little bit um, you know as that starts to accelerate and while that money starts to go away what are your concerns of, about how this issue might be going in the wrong direction and what are the most important things that we need to do to keep the momentum going on this issue yeah I mean so. I mean, about the disasters, you know, the flooding in East Kentucky, the tornadoes in in West Kentucky. Um, 
we're trying to use that as an inflection point to build an everlasting model to help people rebuild. Um, so we have a proposal with the Homeless and Housing Coalition of Kentucky called AHART. Um, it's a disaster housing trust fund. It's We're stealing this idea from Florida. They have natural disasters that happen on a regular basis, and they have a funding mechanism so that they can um, help people rebuild. Um, you know, and it's not to du- duplicate or replace what FEMA does. It's really just to supplement what they're already, what we're getting from the feds. But it's a homegrown solution that we're in control of. Um, so rather than calling in a special session and trying to figure out a funding structure and how much goes into what, like we have an evergreen like system where we know we're going to give money to KHC, the the housing, the state financing agency, um, Kentucky Housing Corporation, and they have all the contracts, they have all the regs, so they know how to do it. So that's that's something that we're working on right now in Frankfurt, um, using that those disasters as like this is a reason that we need to do it now is it's going to happen again. It might happen in Owsley County next. It might happen in, um, you know, Round County, you know, Caldwell County. Like, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when and how. Um, in terms of all the other things, like it's, you know, in ter- like emergency rental assistance. Louisville got over $100 million to spend on back rent. We're never going to get that much money again. Um, but it's our job right now as advocates to take what we learned and try to instill on policymakers and administrators to say, it wasn't the end of the world when we changed how we did business a little bit during COVID. We should make that our standard operating procedure of like, you know, for example, not making people prove that they're poor at every city office. Um, You know, try and limit the times that we ask people to prove that they have a job. Um, limit those barriers and those like requirements of, you know, why do I need to produce a social security card? I have a driver's license, like that should suffice. I don't need to constantly reproduce it every time. So that's kind of like where we're at. I'm afraid that it's going to go away. I'm afraid that we're going to move on to the next issue, um, be it food, be it gas prices, be it inflation. But like this issue was an issue before COVID, it was airing and it's going to be after. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we really appreciate uh, all that you've shared with us today. It was really when we did the North Fork show, uh, that was about a a very specific housing issue. So it was very cool to talk about this on a broader level. Um, But if people listen to this and they want to get involved in um, housing advocacy or learn more about what you're doing, um, how can people do that? Yeah, so I would first start on thinking about what your theory of change is and like what kind of friction point do you want to work at? Do you want to work at the state level? Do you want to work at the local level? And just do your homework to figure out like what organization matches up with your work. And it might be, you know, are you a system change person? Person, I would reach out to Homeless and Housing Coalition of Kentucky, Metropolitan Housing Coalition or or us, the Coalition of the Homeless. But you may just want to have like on the grounds experience of working with people that are homeless or housing insecure. So I would reach out to a shelter locally, um, ask them what they need. Um, the one thing I would impress upon your 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 listeners is, you know, remember that people are have free will. You remember people that are 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 creative, resourceful, and whole, and you know, listen to what they actually need and don't like assume that you know what's best for them. 
And so that, you know, in practice, you know, don't, don't just show up at a camp with a box of goodwill clothes. Like it's not going to, it's not going to actually help people like figure out what is actually needed and, and, and bring that mutual aid to them. Awesome. Yeah. Treat people with respect always. It's always good advice no matter what. Uh, and yeah, that definitely goes for homeless folks or people who don't have access to housing every day. All right, George Eklund, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, we will uh, talk to you again soon, but thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast Network and the Forward Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.